The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be picking up here in just a moment or two when I can get settled along about verse number 29. So Mark 1, beginning in verse 29. Now this section that we're in really had its beginning, in my mind at least, back up in verse 21, albeit it does subhead itself. This is all about uh, Mark's account at least, approving the authority of Jesus and he does that in two basic ways. Number one, we mentioned a few weeks ago, he does that through proving the power, the authority, or as I've used the word command, once we get that off the screen, uh, of Jesus concerning the words that he spoke. And then also he does it concerning the wonders uh, that he commits to. And by wonders, I'm speaking of the miracles. Those are oftentimes in Scripture called wonders, signs, spiritual signs. There are many representations that are given to that but those are all pointed toward the miracles. Now, we did take view of those words back up in verse 21 and 22, and that is that he spoke as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. That's a quotation there taken from verse 22, and that was when he was in the synagogue. He remained in the synagogue, as we saw the record on last week, verses 23 through 27-ish, or 8 exactly, he remained there in the synagogue, and that's where he committed Mark's first recorded miraculous healing. And of course, by doing that, he was casting out those evil spirits, those demons, what have you, uh, from that man. Those unclean spirits is what the King James says about him. And he pointed out that even the spirits, and the men around him noticed this as well, they said even the spirits do obey him. And of course, that's again the authority of Jesus, the latter part of verse 27 represented there. Now, when you get down to verse 28, it lets us know, and we saw this toward the very end as we were hurriedly finishing up, uh, that it says immediately his fame was spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And of course, that's just pointing out the fact that this whole area, not just in Capernaum where he was, but the whole area was beginning to hear about him. Uh, the word that is used there uh, several different times in the context, the Greek word backs it up pretty closely, the idea of fame uh, I've come to understand maybe that that doesn't mean that he was necessarily famous, obviously the way that we see it, but his fame for their minds uh, should have been more faith. And that's really where we have to get to today, not seeing him as something to be famed, but something to be kept our faith in. And so in verse 29, we're going to begin reading that in just a moment. This context really goes quite a ways. As a matter of fact, I've kind of moved the bar. You can't necessarily see my Bible, but I've got a few scratch outs where I've shifted down. In my mind, the context goes all the way from verse 21, uh, picks up these miraculous acts, and goes all the way through, I've moved it about an hour ago, through verse 39. And that's because 39 becomes kind of a summary verse for that. But there are basically three miraculous acts or groups of acts that are committed here. One being the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. That's the first one we'll see here, verses 29 through about verse 31. And then verses 32 through 34, he heals many. And that's just the word that's used there. There are multitudes of people that come out outside of, it seems, right outside the door of Peter's home. And uh, he heals them, does that for the majority of the night, 
And then finally, in verse 35 through 39, uh, Jesus finally goes out into a solitary place. And that's most likely in the wee hours of the morning. We might call that basically on their, on their uh, clock, I'm going to say calendar, their calendar, their clock, what have you, probably would be about around 3 to 6 a.m. Uh, Jesus goes out to pray. And there's a number of times throughout the gospel accounts where Jesus does go out into solitary places to pray. Um, however, Mark only chooses to record three of those. One of them is here. He'll do that later around the feeding of the 5,000. Mark's account at least of that. And then he'll do that in Gethsemane. Of course, we're a ways away from those others, but that is where we will get to. Now, I've kind of widened our box out, the red box, as far as the parallel accounts and the context because I've decided to group these together. And if we are able to get through it, I don't, think, don't know that we will, but if we can get through it, we're going to be basically covering three paragraphs uh, tonight in this. And, and hopefully, Lord willing, if we can do that, next week will be the singing. And then the following week, it's my plan at least to finish uh, chapter one before we go off for our summer series for the month of July and the first week of August. But nonetheless, let's start just reading here, verse 29. We'll kind of read all of it in together and then come back. Here's what it says. King James speak, you read along. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed of devils, and all of the city were gathered outside the door. Now that's not to be taken literally, but that speaks of the multitude that was there. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. And we'll mention more about that hopefully. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, that is Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Verse 36, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that, they, that I may preach there also, for therefore I came forth. And then I'll add verse 39 to that. And he preached in all the synagogues throughout of Galilee and cast out devils. Now, that's a big chunk to bite off, but that's at least what we're going to attempt to do. Backing up to the very first part of that, the first uh, couple of verses of that, the healing of the mother-in-law of Peter. Now, we looked at a few weeks ago, I tried at least to put a few pictures up of what that was. I didn't choose to do that again, but they have an archaeological site that supposedly, according to tradition and history, is actually the former site of where Peter's house was. And in proximity to where that site is today presently, uh, and it's pretty well documented that may be what that is, Peter's house and Andrew's house, that is about 84 feet, I've been told. And I checked that out a few sources. They semi-agreed on that. That's only about 84 feet from the synagogue. And so Jesus is still in the same area. He's still in the same proximity. He's still doing the same things. And you can assume he's in the same mindset that he would have been in when he was in the synagogue. And that includes not only when he was teaching, 
But basically when he's interrupted by that one that had the unclean spirits that cried out, when he healed that man and had those spirits to be cast out, he's in the same time frame, the same mindset and all. And when he moves out into Peter's house, as the record says, we'll reread that, it says immediately, verse 29, and forthwith, that's the same as immediately, and when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into Simon and Andrew's house, and John and also uh, James and John were there. Uh, when they move into Simon Peter's house, uh, they haven't, again, haven't gone far, but they make their way into that house, and they immediately come and tell Jesus, the mother-in-law is sick. Now, the reason that they may have done that is obvious, and that is they've just witnessed that Jesus has this miraculous ability. And although there may be other miracles that are performed before this, in Mark's account, the way he lays this out and the way he moves through this very quickly, the idea is that they jump to Jesus and turn back and just say, look, here she is, she's sick, and as the text tells us, she's sick there with a fever. Now, if you go to the parallel accounts, and we won't take time to read those, but I would definitely encourage you to do that, you can go back and look into Luke's account, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, also, Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, you get a little bit of extra information, not a lot of different in detail, but a little bit of extra information, where that those accounts, particularly Luke's account, because he being a physician, he points out that she had a great fever. That is emphasizing she was extremely sick. Now, the term's not used here. I'm not claiming that it is, but it's a similar language to the fact of many that Jesus would heal, which would be reported as being nigh to death, where they would be in a dire strait. They would be on what we might call death's bed. As a matter of fact, when you put the two accounts together, Luke and Matthew's accounts, you find out that she was laid out flat on that bed, emphasizing most likely how terribly sick she was. Now, we have to consider that in Jesus' day, first century times, Pretty much anything that caused them to be ill, other than what they could see visually, something like leprosy, would have been considered a fever, and that's about all they would have known about it. They would not had necessarily the technology or the understanding of med medicines and such to define or to try to determine what exactly was wrong. All they noted in these people was the fact that they had fevers, and they really had very little way of treating. How many bottles of Tylenol did they have? How much ibuprofen? How much access do they have to do anything about it? And so you've got people, individuals in that day, many of which, and we've said this before, understood this, the majority of people probably who died then, not that it wouldn't ultimately die, but should not and would not have died of the simple, what we know today, the simple diseases and the simple issues that they had. And you go back in our history and go back a, even a, a decade or uh, not a decade, a century or so ago, and you can see what the flu would have done to someone or the common cold and what have you and other things that we've gotten where we can uh, somewhat overcome and somewhat defeat or, or take care of. Jesus comes into this house and they have no such cures. And so you can assume the excitement, the enthusiasm they have when Jesus walks in and it kind of comes out in the way that it's dealt with when it says uh, back up in verse 29, forthwith, when they come into the, out of the synagogue, they enter the house, and, and verse 30, and Simon's wife's mother was laid sick, and they came and took, and he, that is Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Immediately the fever left her. And so a few things that you can note about this, I've kind of circled a few different things. We'll skip over most of that. But Simon Peter's, Simon having a wife's, I can't speak, 
Simon having a, a wife's mother, what does that imply about him that we know can contradict much of the religious world? Could not have been the Pope. As a matter of fact, I didn't realize this till today when I was putting a few different things together. This reference back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5 most likely indicates that not only did Peter have this mother-in-law, we know that's the fact from here, but also indicates that at some point in time he actually carried his mother-in-law and his wife probably on his travels. And so an entire religious group that has existed, one of the earlier groups that existed in the religious denominational world who claims that Peter was likely their first pope or at least claimed that he was, and then they in turn claimed that a pope cannot be married. This defeats that if you want to see it that way. Of course, that's all made up in their own uh, doctrine, so it doesn't have to prove anything much. But the fact that she would lay sick and that she had a fever there is something to be noted. Another thing you can see, I kind of emphasize or underline as we move quickly, uh, the phrase there that he took her by the hand. In Jesus' day, it's traditionally at least, most quote-unquote religious leaders would not even dare to touch a woman. And that comes about for a lot of reasons, socially, that sort of thing, obviously, but also the fact that a woman many times in, in that month, and you know what I'm talking about there, would have been considered as being unclean. The Levitical law that I've quoted right here, Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 19, would have prohibited him in most cases from even touching her. But what do we know about Jesus when it comes to healing individuals? Or when it comes to showing compassion or kindness? Is he ever seen afraid of that? Is he ever de dejected by the fact that he might catch something or he might get something of his own self or he might become unclean religiously or does it ever seem to affect Jesus when he's out uh, mingling with the people what other people might think of him? He touched lepers and matter of fact he'll touch one here in just a few verses on down the page. He has contact with these people. He has a level of compassion to which he is willing to take hold and to participate in these people's lives. And we know that she is completely healed. We'll see this in a moment on another screen. But we know for a fact that she is completely healed because of the phrase here in this latter verse that she got up immediately and ministered unto them. What does the word minister mean? Cliff talked about that a few weeks back. Of course, most of us understood those definitions. She served them. I don't know exactly what that meant. You might indicate that she got up and, and fixed them a meal. Maybe she prepared a meal after they'd been in the synagogues all day. But she was in full recovery. Now, I want you to ask yourself, many of us have in the last few years suffered with different things, flu and COVID, whatever. What is the most likely thing for you to do if your fever leaves you? What do you feel like for the next few hours or days or months? You're, you're weakened. You don't have the strength or you're not willing to have the strength. Now, that may be assuming too much, but she gets up and she ministers unto them. Now, if I had any doubt about Jesus, I might say, well, she's just a tough old bird. You know, she got right up from the bed. This occurred. But is that how he performed his miracles? Were they ever partial, incomplete, unfinished? No, of course not. And so what we learn about Jesus and his miracles and I hope that's, the, that's not the next screen that come up. We'll hopefully get to it in a moment. We learn things like this. The way that Jesus performed his miracles and the way that they were done, of course, his were true and others were not. Many shysters, many false prophets were out there and still are. 
that claimed to perform miracles, but Jesus was able to do those and accomplish those in a complete way. These are just a few examples of the differences that oftentimes occur between the true miracles of our Lord, obviously His were true, and the ones we see today. You take some of the most famous ones, the one that I'm most familiar with because long story I won't go into, but I've almost got some, uh, some real-life contact with Benny Hinn. His miracles are nothing like this. None of those men of the past who were faith healers or whatever that have come through town or come nearby uh, have done anything like this. Jesus' miracles, these just are examples, and I could have put a, you know, 20 references out beside each. I tried to narrow it down to one. But oftentimes his miracles were done by a simple word or touch. And I'm not any less impressed by either one. I'm impressed by the touch because of the compassion that's involved in that. Like he touched her, lifted her by the hand. Like he would touch lepers and others. Like he would touch the eyes of blind men and such. But those that are committed by word, and that's kind of one of the references here, this Matthew 8 and verse 13, where even when he was dealing with a nobleman's son, he healed him not from just a, a, a meter or two away, but miles he only spoke the words. He told that father, go home, your son is already healed. And according to the way the record goes, he was definitely healed. And of course, the family and the servants reported that when he got back. He's, he's been healed since blank yesterday at this time and whatever. And he said, well, that's, that's when Jesus spoke. His miracles were like that. His miracles were always done instantly. They always done totally. They were done to everyone. You think about a faith healer of today, what do we see when we, they don't come on television like they did when I was a kid necessarily, that's a good thing I guess, but what do we normally see with them? If they're going to quote heal someone, how selective are they? They're extremely selective. Matter of fact, most times when they've been kind of uncovered, when there's been a whistleblower, it's been someone that says, well, these folks weren't sick at all. They were already chosen from the audience earlier. Maybe they, they flew in on a plane right there along beside this faith healer. They were prepared, their act was ready. Jesus was not selective in that. He healed everyone. He was healing them before everyone. If you look through this, this may have been the, one of the most, maybe not the most, I didn't check all these, but this may have been one of the most limited in the number of people who laid eyes on it, miracles that he would ever do. Most everything else he would commit, he would commit completely out in the open, out in the streets, in front of the multitudes and such. And even this one, most likely, and we know, by the way, the crowds would eventually come, uh, crowds would be witness to it nonetheless. He did them everywhere. He had no problem doing that in any certain place. You know, again, you've got a faith healer. They want to do that uh, on a stage in front of a group of people, but they want to do it on a certain arranged date and a time, and Jesus had no limits to that. And he was willing to do it on verifiable, this is a key, verifiable diseases. You know, when you have someone like the example I chose to put out this reference here, you look, uh, Matthew chapter 3, one, through 1 and 5, you've got a man there with a withered hand. It's obvious when that limb is withered or in some cases missing or whatever, it's obvious that he heals these people. But others are not necessarily willing to do that. So Jesus' miracles were verifiable and they were even done on the dead. And the reference I chose here, he actually... As I say, he went to a funeral at that point and found the man of Nan and decided to heal in turn his daughter. He had no business doing that save he were true in his miracles.
And so we've got Jesus here coming in. He performs this miracle on Peter's mother-in-law. She is sick of a fever. She's severely sick. She's flat on her bed, flat on her bed, and she immediately rises up and begins to minister to them. So they're all verifiable. His miracles are always true. Now we'll back up just a bit here to verse 32, continuing the reading for time. And that even, and this is in the, in the same day, he's come out of the synagogue straight to the house at even. When the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and then that were possessed of devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. Why do you think that he chose to bring these people to Jesus at even? Or is that even significant? That would, that would imply a good bit, except for one thing we're going to mention. This is the evening of the Sabbath day. It would have been likely, except for the fact that they weren't allowed to work. Matter of fact, it may be the case that they chose to bring these people at even time because they were in some senses obeying a part of the Levitical law to do no work on that day which would have been included. And it depends on what sect of the Jews in Jesus' day, what sect of the Pharisees or whatever group you were with, but some of them were even so strict. I read this in a couple of different locations. So again, that's as verifiable as I can get. I'm not saying it is true. I'm just telling you historically it supposedly is. Some were so strict with that that they would not even pick up their infants on the Sabbath day for fear to be accused by others of work. And we know that wouldn't be a standard of God by any means, but that's the type of things that they were being held to by those who were supposedly the, the experts in the law, the scribes and others who'd already causing problems for Jesus here. These men, these women seemingly come out at even time because they're now free to do so. At 6 p.m., that next day, we might call it, in that, in that case, Sunday morning, which, of course, we, we're in a different realm than them, a different time. But that Sabbath, that day of rest was over. And they were free to go back to doing as they pleased in some senses. And so they wait till even time, maybe even the cover of darkness to some extent, they start bringing these people. And so the sun did set, and they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many. Did Jesus have any say, you can assume, over who was brought, again, looking at the way a shyster might work, or, or some fake? These people that they're bringing out, they're not, you can assume these are not the most simplistic cases to heal. These people are bringing out family members or, or maybe if they're, if they're able to make it out there themselves, whatever the illness or disease or, or ailment might be. These people are coming to Jesus there and they're all coming. There are multitudes stacking up. And this is kind of a theme that goes through Mark's account here in Mark chapter 1. It's the same case if you look over into chapter 2. In uh, verse 1 and 2, And again he entered into Capernaum, so he's right back in the same place. And after some days it was noise that he was in the house, so he's there in the house, that may be Peter's house again, I, I wouldn't prove that. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch as there was no room to receive them, no, so, no not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So Jesus is gathering the multitudes, the, again the fame 
I'm using the word that is up back up the page there in verse 27. The fame of him is being spread about. And he's allowing all that were in the city to gather. He's allowing many of them that were sick to come out. Now, the contrast between that, I, I read uh, one commentator, whatever you might call him, that was arguing and said, well, we've got a biblical contradiction here because it says they all came out, they were all healed. Then it says, well, he just healed many of them. It's probably more the definition of the fact that all was many. All was many. You know, if you're down in modern day Ironiton, and you say they all came out, everybody from the community of Ironiton came out and met with whomever it was down at the Ironiton uh, church building, how many might that involve? It'd be many to Ironiton folks. But if you were speaking of something over in Atlanta and you said, well, many came out, what is that? It's many, but it's a whole lot more. Jesus is in, in this point. He's outside or right next door to, you may as well say 84 feet if that's correct, to the synagogue in Capernaum, which is the largest city. And I'm not implying that that's a million or anything. It's not nearly that large, but one of the larger cities in that day, a hustling, bustling fishing town in that day, which had at least the one synagogue, more than likely more than those were in existence at the time, and that's represented the population. And many people did come out. And all people, not necessarily be taken literally, but all people were about the door. Now you think about if you had someone like Jesus who was realistically in actuality healing as he was, the record that he had cast out a demon which presented his complete authority over something to which they had never had authority before that is the demonic, the evil spirits that were taking over people in that day, if Jesus were doing that, how many would come out? Well, obviously, as it records here, all that were coming that were desirous of being healed or, or their family bringing them. In the next chapter, again, chapter 2, the narrative there is that he's in the house, he's preaching. They bring a lame man. He's got four uh, friends that come along with him. The multitudes are so packed outside the door, they can't even get up to the door to see. You've got people who are actually there for the healing itself. You've got the supporters of those. You've got those who are curious. Those who are just interested. I'm just trying to build a, a mental case, a picture in my mind, that the multitudes are packing this place out. And Jesus is easily beginning to establish himself at least to one point as someone who can commit to doing physical acts. And that's a huge contrast to when you get down to verse 39 and what he wanted to do, what he was trying to accomplish. And we're jumping ahead of this, but you can imagine, and it, it pretty much happened in his disciples there, along about verses 35 through 39, his disciples come and basically said, Jesus, they want you. They want you back in town. They need you there. We've got people who are sick. We've got people who need to be healed. There's devils to be cast out. What's Jesus' ultimate reply to that? Way ahead. Nah. Let's go to another town and preach. You mean you don't want to take advantage of what, what you, you're building? No. Let's just go somewhere else and do this. But you've already got a crowd. No. We'll, we'll just go, go over somewhere else. And so the many are coming out to be healed. 
And then notice this, it says there in verse 34, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases. He cast out many devils, and he suffered not the devils to speak of him, quote, because they knew him. Why would he allow the devils? What's your, just your suggestion. Why would he not allow the devils to speak of him? Time wasn't come yet is the reason behind it. But what did they know about him? That's not really a but. And what did they know about him? They knew exactly who he was. That's kind of the case we made last week, I hope, with, with verse after verse after verse and slide after slide that showed and, and drew the contrast between what the demons, the devils, knew about Jesus, the information they had that they were willing to even vocalize versus what the scribes, the Pharisees, and in one case we even looked at it in the last, even his own disciples were not yet willing to comprehend or at least not willing to uh, confess. They knew he was the Son of God. Yes, sir. Jesus did not want these demons declared to the people. That's exactly right. Isn't that a parallel in Acts 16 when uh, Paul is in Philippi and was followed by the girls? He says, These men are servants of the Most High God. Yep. Exactly right. They, they, the fact that Jesus, as was said a moment ago, and that's back to the same thing. His time had not yet come. So Jesus was taking advantage, or not taking advantage, that's, that's a terrible way to say that, but Jesus was following the will of his Father in what he did. And so he would not even allow them to speak because they knew him. Now, when it comes to the demons, he took, it seems, and this is not just in the accounts we've seen thus far, you'll see this throughout the Gospel accounts, when it came to the demons, how much control did Jesus take over them in that moment? I say all of it. Because he basically commands them not to speak, and what do they not do? They don't speak. What happens when he heals humans and tells them not to speak? Same context coming up. They do. I mean, they, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know who to knock or who to uh, call wrong on that or whatever, but... Many times, not all, but many times, they are what we might call on fire for what Jesus has done, and that comes up in the next context that we're trying to hurriedly get down to. Now pick up the reading there again in uh, verse 35, this next section here. What does Jesus do about that, basically? Look at this. Verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, that is Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore I'm, I come, come I forth. Now just really quickly in this, I mentioned this in passing a moment ago. The fact that it's even listed as being early in the morning, the fact that it's even listed in this case as being a great while before day, at least, that's my disclaimer, at least in their time, or the division of time, would have put it between 3 and 6 a.m. It could have put it earlier than that. 
But we know Jesus has obviously not waited, as it says, under the rising of the sun. He's not waited until daybreak. He gets up early. Now, what do we often apply to that? When we talk about Jesus praying in the early times of him praying, what do, we t- what do we get out of that? What's our most practical lesson? We, do, we ought to do the same thing, and we do well to do the same thing. And the fact that mainly that Jesus put a priority on that, and that he made that a part of his day, that he was willing to get up and go up early. He was willing to take out time. Now, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking for hands or anything, because if I did, my hand would be laying flat on the floor. But how many of us set an alarm every morning and say, well, I'm going to get up, you know, Five minutes, I'll make a real easy one. Five minutes, Jesus may have been two or three hours before normal time, so I'll have time with my Lord by myself. Probably not as many innocent as guilty on that, but Jesus put that time in. That's just the practical side of that. But the idea that he got up, he went into a solitary place and there prayed. Now, it's not... A mystery about this but the idea that he prayed is emphasizing seemingly from its original word that he was praying he was continuing in prayer he was constant in prayer he was consistent in prayer he put effort into that he put time into that there was some labor that came and was involved in that and so when Simon and Andrew come or Simon and this comes out of course these others perhaps with him they followed after him when they let him know that all men are seeking after thee. His, again, their request may have been something like I just illustrated. Jesus, you've got multitudes here who are still waiting. I get that you were up most of the night and healing these people. And maybe you only got a little bit or a little time of sleep. And I get that you've been out here praying. But it's time for you to get back into town because there are plenty of people who still like to see you. Why would we hope they were there? To hear him. But of course, that's what he indicates. We would hope that they were there because their faith has grown to a point where they've decided and determined. Many have come in and said, look, we just, whatever it is he's doing, whatever he's talking about, whatever he's teaching, I want to be a part of that. And in the context, back up the page where you're looking at verse 21 and 22, where he was preaching in the synagogue, or we are looking at verse 23 to 28, where it says he was healing in the synagogue, that demonic man. In both cases, they asked the question, interestingly enough, what kind of teaching is this? Now, you get teaching with a mouth, but he had teach with his, with his works as well. He had taught people by doing these miracles. And so Jesus interrupts them basically, in the language that's here at least, it tells us that once they found him, he tells them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. That is Jesus' interest. That is Jesus' concern. Now, obviously the miraculous support that, we'll see that in a moment, mention that really, really quickly. Obviously, that is a part, the miracles that he put forth are a part of proving his teaching and emphasizing it or verifying it. But the same thing thing stands, his intention is to preach. He was here to teach. 
Now, you can brainstorm in your mind and say, well, why did Jesus come to earth? And you say, well, Luke 19, 10, he came to seek and save that which was lost. That's a good verse. That, that proves a lot. Somebody say, well, according to John 10 and verse 10, he was come that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly. Absolutely, great proof text for that. But how did he see fit to accomplish that? You say, well, it's by the shedding of his blood. Oh, well, yes, that's true too. But he chooses and chose to do that by preaching. And that's what he in turn is telling or would tell his disciples. And so we've got Romans 10 in my mind, verses 14 and 15 being fulfilled. He is preaching. He knows a preacher ought to be sent. He knows a preacher is needed to bring the gospel of peace. And then he does and puts forth these three ideas we don't have time to get to. But he was willing to prove himself by his miracles. He was willing to power himself by the prayers that he's involved in right here. And he's willing to put a priority in his heart on preaching. And so the final question for myself then would be, what ought my emphasis be in life? Somebody says, well, I'm not a, I'm not a preacher. Or I'm, I'm not even a male to be able to preach in a public assembly like this. No, no Christians, Christians. What's our intention? You know, the, the thing is, we couldn't do the miracles if we tried. But we can always carry His truth through His Word forward. Questions, comments? All right. I don't know that we hit top, side, or bottom, but we made it to where I tried to get. So that's, that's what we accomplished. Thank you for your time.